Hello, I'm Alex and this is the Northern Guides to Happiness. Welcome to episode 15. As always, I'm here in our virtual studio with the rest of the podcast team, Kath, Andrea and Chris. How are we all? Hello. Hello. Hi. Bad. Ooh, fine. <laughs> we, we've really got no better at that over the years, of, of the, the last year, have we? So we that synchronised hello at the beginning. We, we just had a really nice harmonious hello, though. Uh, true. Yeah, we did. We th- very harmonious. We spoke as one. <laughs> we're, we're either harmonious or there's deadly silence. There's no kind of happy medium, is there? Yeah. <laughs> With the hellos. I'll give, it, I'll give it one more series and then we'll be, we'll be good at it. <laughs> Chris, what have you been up to? I've been feeling slightly smug today. Just, oh. well, because <laughs> we're recording this on a day after many days of sunshine and warm temperatures and it's been a little bit overcast today. So... And I think Newcastle is just about the only place on the planet that is overcast. Um, so I've been looking at all my colleagues on teams today, sweating in buckets in places like Cornwall and Swansea. I'm just thinking, yeah, yeah, it's fine. We're okay. It's fine. All smug. All smug. We, I will sleep tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I, I can definitely chime with that one. Yes, it, uh, it has been lovely today. With the cloud. <laughs> with the cloud. Yeah. Slightly dreamy. Well, I went out for a run and yeah, the overcast cloud is just perfect running conditions. So yes, I was very thankful for the cloud. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> what about you, Andrea? How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm thanking the clouds too. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm self-isolating. Oh, so, no. so I'm at home. I'm at home trying not to do too many domestic chores, mm-hmm. but equally not happy sitting in a really untidy, chaotic house. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> make I'm, coffee. I'm the same. Yes, I'm... make coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I get so easily distracted. Oh, I'll just put that wash on. Oh, I'll just do this. I'll just do the hoovering. And then before you know it, the That's day is gone. Day. That's yeah. your day. That's your day. Exactly. So, yeah. Isn't that the object of the exercise when you're self-isolating? Yeah. <laughs> fill, the t- fill the time. <laughs> Get your life in order. You've got eight days and counting. <laughs> go, go, go. <laughs> no, we did all that last year. Exactly. <laughs> but you're well, Andrea. You're, 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 you're okay. I'm on it. I'm on it. Okay. I'm going to get my life in order by next Tuesday. All right. <laughs> Time is ticking. (laughs) Well, on that note, shall we introduce this week's guest interview? Yes, let's. Oh, yes, please. This this was such a treat, such a treat. I was very privileged to speak to Mark Taylor-Gregg, who lives in North Shields. And I think I called him a polymath at one point. He was introduced to me through a, a lifeboat connection, a time of lifeboat. And that was what I was expecting to talk to him about. But his other skills, talents include being an artist. He also sails. He's also a family man. So here's Mark talking about life in general, happiness in particular. Mark, good afternoon and welcome to the virtual studio of the Northern Guide to Happiness. What have you been doing this morning? Anything interesting? Uh, well, I ha- went and got my second vaccine this morning. <laughs> did, did that make you feel happy? Yeah, it's uh, 
second jabs. <laughs> so, so you're a mature person now. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I'm in that age bracket where uh, you can you can tell how people look, how, how people old people are often, isn't it? At the moment, where you go, how many jabs have you had? <laughs> Has COVID impacted on your life much? Yeah, dramatically. I think I think everyone struggled with you know internal demons and and keeping themselves occupied. I'm an artist, so I'm able to, well, you'd think, be able to paint whenever. As a commercial artist, I found it difficult because the outlets that I've had have, have been closed. I sell a lot of my work in bars and restaurants, and exhibition spaces are closed. So, you know, it was a way that, yes, I could, I could paint for mental reasons, you know, to keep myself mentally fit, but when, when you need to to put you know, food on plates and, uh, and and pay for bills and things. It's, you know, there's stresses within that. I found myself going in the garden and, and uh, just concentrating on that, you know. <laughs> that's, that's my refuge, the garden. Yes, yeah. def- definitely. But it's, it's an interesting perspective, isn't it, from a lot of people who will have discovered art as a tool for their mental health. But in your case, it's not quite the same when there's the commercial commercial side of uh... yeah exactly yeah it's uh, it, it's something which I need to work you know it, the stresses within that it it, it takes uh, it, it takes almost the enjoyment out of it but yeah, I've been painting but just thinking this is this is just something for myself you know but I mean, there was periods of time that I, I didn't want to paint uh, within this uh, lockdown. Which was strange because you know I, this is this is my happy place. I go to to that place to paint, and I think with all the stresses of everything around us, it's difficult to find that sometimes. That's that's really fascinating to think that something that that you assume to be your happy place can change in different circumstances. As I say, I found myself just going right. I I, I can't concentrate. I can't paint today. And I find it really distressing. And then having to say, right, well, what can I do? And you know, the first lockdown when it was when it was really nice outside, I found myself saying, well, I'm just having, I just have to concentrate on this family hope we have. And uh, I have three children, five, seven, and nine. They, they found it great. You know, we don't have to go to school. <laughs> and uh, I just thought, well. Don't worry about this mental block, as you were, this artistic block. Uh, it's almost like a writer's block, but as, a, as an artist, you know, and says, well, go out. And I need something to do where I'll, I'll see an outcome, you know, a, a painting as a start and a finish. And often the finish is a client receiving it and me then having this feeling of joy when they're happy with the, the work that they have, uh, you know, the, the, the piece of commissioned, or whether it be a piece which they buy off the wall of one of the bars and restaurants in the area, you know, it's something which I've painted, not in a selfish way, but in a way that says, well, this, this has really made me happy painting it. So maybe someone else will, will like that. I'm very lucky that the things what make me happy uh, water and, and the shoreline and boats and yachts make other people happy as well. The fish key and all its, you know, fishing boats and, uh, you know, it's 
it's nice on a picture because it doesn't smell as well. <laughs> oh, you've got to have the smell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all part and parcel of it. Tell that to the kids. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to that because it, there's a reason why they might comment on the smell. Yeah, but um, <laughs> could you tell our listeners who Mark Taylor Gregg is? I was Mark Taylor uh, before I got married. I got married 10 years ago. Uh, originally, uh, I was from Blythe. Uh, Northumberland. I uh, was the son of an artist and a, a pilot boat skipper called Dallas uh, Keith Taylor. Uh, he was a well-known artist, head shops in Newcastle and the Metro Centre, when his art became more successful. Before that, he was in bars and restaurants uh, when I was growing up. Um, so hanging, hanging his work, sorry, not in bars and restaurants. He <laughs> <laughs> used to hang, used to hang his whatever. work. <laughs> <laughs> used to hang his uh, work in, uh, in places like that. And, he, and as I say, he was a pilot boat skipper. So he used to take the pilots out to the ships when I was a little kid. And right beside that pilot boat was the lifeboat. And uh, he was a lifeboatman. So I grew up. You know, would be in the car, uh, you know, driving through Blythe and his bleeper, it's called a pager, would go off. And then very early, uh, when I was a little kid, the moon will, moon, sorry, would also go off, which was this boom, you know, you'd hear. And everyone in the area, you know, could hear the moon go off. But uh, certainly uh, everyone still now, uh, Hears pages go off, you know, uh, and if you're anything to do with the RNLI, uh, whenever I'm visiting other places and I hear, hear a pager, my adrenaline's still pump, you know. But yeah, when I was a kid, my dad's pager would go off in the car, and I, and I would say, so excited. And he would drive down to the lifeboat station, and there would always be some of the shore crew would say, right, we'll phone your mother. And, uh, and get her to pick you up. And uh, I would watch my dad get kitted up in his own light gear and uh, watch the, the lifeboat go down the slipway as it, as it used to do in Blythe. As it hit the water, there would be a big plume of, of, of bow wave, you know, poof, and I'd watch them go off to save people's lives. And I thought, when I get older, I want to do that too. So as I, as I grew, grew up in Blythe and then we moved along to Whitby Bay, I was wanted to be part of the RNLI. line and as an art you know growing up around a person who's an artist believed actually that I had the artistic flair I didn't have uh, parents to say that you need a proper job you know you can't can't do that go and work down pit or something you know it was encouraging to say that you know I'm growing up in an environment where I'm with a you know artistic family and I can pursue this and had the support to do that uh, I went to Time Metropolitan College after high school, did a BTEC National Diploma in Art and Design. And I remember getting in on a portfolio because I, I wasn't very good at school. And at the time I didn't know I was dyslexic. And they said, well, we're gonna let you in, but you should have five GCSEs, but your portfolio is very strong. I remember doing that and thought, well, you've got to make most of this because you're very privileged to be part of, part of this. And it was really, really rewarding. I, going through school and not having very much self-esteem, being told you can't do things in life. And um, it was really good. Being in an environment which was supportive and artistic and, you know, continuing what my father had done and thought, actually, I can do this. Oh, that's, that's incredible. 
to have to have that knowledge, that self knowledge, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it was really really great, and, and we supported lecturers, and from there went on to do a degree, which I never thought I would be able to do. And uh, from that degree, then because of my artistic side and also with the boat background, I, I've grown up around always being around water and around boats my dad had and boats, pleasure boats and things he had. I thought I'd, instead of drawing cars, uh, like lots of other people did in, in, at, at university, I'll enjoy I'll boats. And uh, to be honest, where I was at York University, the lecturers were kind of going, well, we'll support you, but could you possibly find a company to work with? And uh, the companies uh, to work with were mainly down south. During my degree, I, I contacted a, a company called Fairline, uh, which were a big motorboat company, really big motorboat company. And uh, I, I worked with them during my degree. Then and after my degree, looked looked for work and I, I interviewed with a company called Sunseeker, who design luxury motor yachts. And uh, also with a company called Sea uh, Line. And I ended up working for a company called Sea Line in Kiddyminster. Uh, and I believe that I thought myself, I have my dream job. I get to draw boats for a living. And I was working part of the, the development team there doing interior design, making mock-ups, and then putting it into production and seeing, and then going on the production line and watching the first three boats go through and making sure that it's, it's you know, it's built to our specifications. And then it's like a little baby, then watching that then baby then go off to then be produced over and over and over again. But, you know, it's, it's something that's come from your hands. You've, you've, you've drawn that and you've then mocked it up and then you now put it in production. And seeing that, it's it's, uh, it's it's fantastic. You know, it's really really good. Sounds a little bit like boys' toys, but uh, well, <laughs> the posh float and caravans, really. Uh, you know, it's it's how many cup holders you've got, how many uh, G and T bottles you can store in there. But you know, it's it it's using the space because when you've got the same as a caravan on a boat, and anyone who knows about living in. In, in confined spaces, which is very popular these days, people are, are wanting to live in, in, in smaller spaces. It's about the storage and how things can be converted. So, you know, it might be a chair during the day, but could it be a, a bed at night? Could this underneath of this uh, chair be storage for something as well? Uh, using every single bit, and that's design. And that's the important thing is, is you can design something which looks really just, oh, that's very, very pretty. And it, it's got a nice artistic flair to it, but the person who wants to use it, it seems any, any part of design has to be functional. So having that and being able to design something that really works and then, you know, seeing that work and knowing that the client who was gonna buy it, it's going to be happy with that. Mm. Also, it gives you that kind of fulfillment back. But you're not a yacht designer now, are you? No, no, no. So uh, I stayed at Sea Line for a couple of years. And during that time, I, I helped uh, a young lad put a portfolio together for university. I found myself thinking, wow, that was really, really good. I really enjoyed helping that person put, put a portfolio together. Uh, I decided that I would come back, even though I was designing boats, 
I missed being around the water and I wasn't fulfilling my childhood dream of being a light woman, the same as my father. And so I came back, ended up sitting in the staff room of what was Northside Side College, which was now renamed uh, Tyne Met. Uh, and I was a lecturer in, in fine art and uh, art and design and uh, interior design. I'm sitting there and looking around and going, these people were my lecturers. <laughs> and now they're my, you know, I kind of, have, I'm chatting on to them and um, I'm a lecturer too. Yeah, it, it was it was this transition from thinking that you you, you work so hard to, to go up a ladder, you know, in, in Korea, you leave university, you have a goal to do X, Y, Z, you know, whatever it is you want to do. And then you actually realise that the ladder was probably better than the goal, you know. Oh, the idea of actually looking around and thinking, I have become what I used to yes. look, up, look up to. Look, look up to, yeah. And, and being able to for uh, about three years, I was at uh, Tyne Met as a lecturer, uh, and, and the amount of students that came back to me, they would say, well, we, were, we weren't really getting on with the course, and we, we were thinking of dropping out, and, and you really helped us stick in and, and supported us. And having them come back and say, oh, well, we, we've got a degree now. Um, tell me a little bit about how that felt, because I, I think that... There's happiness in there somewhere, isn't there? Oh, amazing. It's, it's, it's an amazing feeling to know that you've helped someone. And I think that is happiness, really, helping other people. The academic work didn't, or didn't eventually fit the bill, though, did it? It changed. I was working as a lecturer, and then the opportunity came to move more into the management at a different college. And I, and I went into Newcastle College, and I ran the part-time courses within the art and design department. I recruited for all the, the students, uh, assigned the staff and looked after the retention of the students. That means the students actually stayed during the course, moved away from, from the, uh, the teaching side and realized that, as again, you know, you move up a ladder, but it doesn't necessarily make you happier. That you know, the money might in, increase, uh, and you think that's going to make life easier, but it doesn't make you happier. The happiest time within that lecturing or within college was when I was lecturing, not within management. Yeah, I, I was sitting until sometimes the, the night staff would come around and be turning the lights off, and they realised that I was still at the desk. Oh my you know, goodness. You know, and everyone else had gone home and I'm still stressing over paperwork and, and trying to get the next start course and moving start dates around. It was very different to, to actually seeing the students succeed. Mm -hmm. uh, and did, did, was there a crunch point eventually where you made a choice? Yeah. So? Uh, yes, it was, it, was, it, it was two factors. It was, it was the stress of the job. Uh, and uh, we'd have these uh, meetings where maybe a Wednesday afternoon you would go off to 
the relaxation set at seminar or something and <laughs> blue sky thinking groups and all these different things and i remember sitting within one of these uh, sessions and the, the guy who was saying how to manage stress and things like that and he says you can't continue to do what you're doing you will eventually just have a breakdown and I felt myself this pressure building up and I felt that when you're juggling so many things and you can't put priorities in place and everything's a priority and I need to get this done and these to-do lists each day and all these stresses and it was it was starting to build and uh, around the same time as that my, my father was diagnosed with motor nuance disease he was having to to close uh, his art gallery which was in the metro center uh, because he wasn't going to be able to fulfill his uh, commissions and uh, I thought to myself well what would you rather do would you rather sit in this management role this recruitment at at the college or would you want to go and help your dad and I decided that just as he had, had, had helped me and bathed me when I was a child, I would effectively have to do the same for him. And it was, uh, it was, it was probably the easiest decision. Isn't, uh, that, isn't that strange uh, when you look back at it? Very easy decision to make. It gave, so, you, gave you fulfilment. Yes, to go and help him at the end of his life. Absolutely amazing. Um, we've, we've had, we've had, some very very special people taking part in the in the northern guide and several of them have had crunch points in that vein and and yes you, you you're not alone in in yeah, having it, come out of was. that in that way yes. yeah it's just it, i'm realizing that stress in life uh, you know you you need to uh, just realize what's what's important and i realized that looking after my dad at his end of life and from diagnosis from he was only diagnosed in the august and and he passed away by the january and that was 10 years the anniversary of his passing this year and at that point uh, i realized i i want to look after my dad uh, i stayed on as a lecturer part-time because that was a bit which i enjoyed i said to him i says well I, because his arms were stopping working quite quickly. He had typically in between 12 and 15 months worth of orders ahead of him. He was a very commercial, oh, successful oh, commercial artist. Good grief. He hadn't been working as much. I think possibly he hadn't known he had motor nuance for a while. So he had slowed down and maybe not been in as much and the commissions weren't as high as that but I said to him what I'll do is because during university I used to go in and and copy my dad's work mm-hmm. even though I didn't want to be my dad I wanted to be Francis Bacon or Jackson Pollock or some other real artist not a commercial artist not someone who just paints oh. pictures of Dome Cathedral and, and St Mary's Lighthouse <laughs> I, I wanted to be a real artist <laughs> And and I, I kind of I, I fought against the idea of, of being a commercial artist because that's not real art. I found myself painting these pictures and really enjoying it and realizing that why why have I put myself through all of this stress thing in the office when I had this capability? Um, 
being able to paint pictures and and you know they are commissioned by people of scenes possibly from their holidays uh, some mountain with a lake and you know and some nice reflections and i found myself really enjoying doing his commissions and then i found myself going actually i want to do this paint my dad's done but i want to use more detail i want to put something me into this I, I, I can I, i've got the technique now of using because uh, my father i uh, worked with oils with a palette knife and there would be like a butter knife you know a butter style knife and that would like, smear the paint on and make the clouds and then there'd be a small diamond art, artist trowel and that would be your little leaves and yeah, the bits which made the kind of the curves and the bits and bobs and uh, some, and maybe part of the building, you would use a small one for the windows, you know? And once I had these techniques during university, I'd, I'd, I'd painted in the shop uh, and, and paid my way a little bit as well. And kind of, you would say, well, you can't have one of these because they're all, they're all sold, they're all orders, but you can have that one across there and it would be one of mine. And so, <laughs> so while I was away at university, I used to pop back and paint a picture, you know. So I had had the, the background of building this technique, but it was only really when I was looking at, uh, when I was sitting beside him and uh, he would, he would say, right, I hold my hand up. He would be holding whatever, I would be holding his hand. Oh, I see. And, yeah. and, and I would have to work together. And he would say, right, that's how you do that movement. <laughs> that's incredible. So he was teaching you right to the last. Yeah, yeah. After physically holding, he says, "No, that's rubbish. You have you done that wrong." And the good thing with oil paint, you can you can you can scrape it, it up and start again. And you start again. So he would show me show me them techniques, and that was a um, you know thing to do. And I thought, I'm going to continue his legacy, his work, and and his studio, and and not close the shop. Absolutely, you've done that in another sense as well, didn't you? Because you you mentioned early on. A, about the sea, your association with the sea. I had to chuckle in our email exchange while we've been setting up this this uh, mm -hmm. discussion that you offered me a couple of venues for, for the, if you can't find me at home, I'll be at the marina or I'll be at the lifeboat. <laughs> but no, nobody's ever said that to me before. So where does the lifeboat fit in or how did well as soon as that I, is your one of your happy places isn't it yeah so as soon as i was back back in the area le lecturing i was able to live by the coast and that was the key thing that it had to be as near as possible to to a local lifeboat station that was part of the search wasn't oh it? god yeah, yeah. <laughs> any 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 moving of houses uh it has to be within <laughs> response time for a lifeboat so uh, certainly not, not many people can say that yeah yeah exactly i know it's, it's funny when, when looking for houses when you and say well, what sort of area you're looking for and you, and you give a list of about five streets and they go oh well, i'm sorry i can't help you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah i when i came back uh, to the area uh, i moved into time off straight away was uh, was down trying to see whether i could be part of that station my father knew a, a lot of the crew and, and said you might have mark knocking on your door soon he's uh, he's, he's going to be back around in the area but mind you you don't need an invitation in terms of you don't need anyone to to put you forward for this sort of thing anyone who wants to be part of the r and 
uh, can be. Really? Uh, yeah, uh, as long as it, in the local area uh, to the lightboat station. Uh, so I, I, w I went down, started turning up for exercises. So you take you out as a trainee, first of all. About six, eight months later, I, I had the medical, uh, which is essential to see whether you're fit enough. Uh, and then I, I got a pager. Uh, which which is the same as what my father had when I was a kid, uh, and uh, and that goes off, and I respond to it. It's a fantastic thing. Uh, oh, what, what did what did it feel like to have the page? Oh, uh, it was just my family were like, oh my god, you you know you you you've got there, you've, you've you're you've a grown got, up. But... You've you've got, you've got that page. You've always really wanted one, you know, from being a tiny kid. You've aspired to be a lifeboat person. And, uh, and, and, you know, just logistics of being at York University and then living in Kidminster, it just ha hadn't happened, you know, until a few years after I'd expected it to. But as soon as I was back and uh, I was able to do that, I was down the lifeboat station. So Within how, how long have you been in, in, in the lifeboat? About 15, 16 years ago. You've progressed, yeah. you've progressed a bit since then, haven't you? Yeah, so... Uh, when you join, you go on to, well, it just happens at our station, we have two lifeboats. We have something called a D-class lifeboat, which is an inshore inflatable, and that will do lots of coastal rescues for people on rocks and, and beach lines. And we also have a seven-class lifeboat, which is 17 metres. Uh, it's the largest in the fleet of lifeboats, and that is called an all-weather all lifeboat. And that has a, a capability to go m miles and miles offshore. So when you first join up, you can be crew on, on both of these. Uh, within a year and a half, I progressed and I was the helm, which is the person who drives the small boat. And I'm in command of the two crew. I'm also responsible for the casualty uh, and the vessel, the boat, and thinking about the risks involved in going to save someone. So you might be in a massive sea, for instance, there's someone standing on, on a rock off by the tide and you think, right, is this person in grave and immediate danger? Or am I putting my crew and myself in too much risk and wait until the tide goes out and then they can just walk ashore? You've got to think about the risk versus benefit all the time. It's a little, little graph what they give you. And you look at this line and say, if the risk is too high and the benefit, you've got to all the time thinking about the risk you're putting yourself in and the crew and, and whether you, you can save this person or whether you can actually effectively make myself and my two crew also a casualty as well. Where I'm able to go out and... Uh, and make that calculation. I, I did that and I saved uh, a boy and his, his father off of uh, Marsden Rock. There was a, a two metre swell rolling in. We train constantly in exercises to do this procedure. It's a technical term, it's called veering down. You basically put the anchor out on the outside of the surf line. You effectively reverse the boat with the engine, letting the anchor line out. 
And when the wave comes towards you, which is going to break over top of you, like a, a big surf coming over top of you, you hold the line and it puts this anchor line under tension. You release the throttle on the engine, which then propels you through forwards, through the surf, and then you back it up a bit more again. So you do this procedure and you do practice it, practice it, practice it all the time. And we worked out that these two people were in grave, grave and immediate danger. They would have possibly died. Or certainly, we, we worked out that they would have died if, if we hadn't have gone and got them. And um, that day, there was another helm down first. Uh, so he took the helm. Typically, the first helm down takes the helm. Uh, but as a helmsman myself, I'm an experienced crew, and uh, I knew that uh, it was, you know, good to have two helms on board, as it were. And we had another crew member on board as well. We did this procedure back to back, like we'd done so many times in exercise. Uh, we got to Marsden with this massive sea, uh, uh, big sea coming in, and they were clinging onto a rock. Their hands and their feet were bleeding because of. Uh, having to scale the rock, they'd been swimming and got out of, out of their depths. They'd been there for a while. Were, it was clear they were getting cold. And um, we threw, threw a line to them and explained to a father that we couldn't get close enough in after even coming back on the line, uh, on, on, back on the anchor line, that we couldn't get close enough to save, uh, to, to get them just to transfer onto the boat. There was a rock in place. Says, well, you're just going to tie the rope around your son and he's going to jump. So he jumped and, uh, and pulled him in and we repeated the procedure and did it with father. And uh, within training, you, you slowly pull the anchor line back in. But within a real shout, as it's called, a, a real uh, rescue, you, you take a knife out. And when, when, the smaller waves come in, you cut the line. Then we cut the line and we pulled our way back through the surf. Uh, you look for the biggest wave and you get away from it and go back. And you, uh, sometimes it takes a while to climb back through this surf. And we came back out the other side of it. The whole procedure had been done in about seven minutes. And you realize that the training that you do over and over again is essential because None of it was discussed. It was just automatic. We just went in there and did it like we did so many times before on training. And uh, we saved them. That was definitely. So you you went back back to your base and the, the two. Yeah, well, we dropped them off of the air ambulance crew. We have a drop off point, uh, happened to be South Shields uh, ferry landing. Uh, and the ambulance crew was there to receive them. Their mother, who had not been able to get onto the rock, had been swept ashore and got around the back of Marsden and been swept ashore. And she was standing very distressed, watching us rescue her, her husband and son. It, uh, the ambulance team had picked her up and she was waiting there and received them. And um, So what happens after that, after the... They've gone off in the ambulance and then you're left with them. Well, that's it. So we just go back, we refuel straight away and we say to the uh, Coast Guard, ready for service. Because 
sometimes you can get another pager straight away so so how how do you feel when you're getting back in the car or walking home or you need to uh, to process it sometimes it's difficult on a, on a rescue you know it's certain circumstances mean that um we aren't able to to save someone we get calls out more and more often now for people who are uh, vulnerable and um and we are sometimes called to you know if someone is sitting on the top of the cliffs a lot of the time they'll be encouraged to come back from the edge the ones which haven't been able to have probably done it straight away so sometimes we have to process the fact that we're going to recover uh, a deceased casualty and uh, so that there's an element of, of how to deal with that but the majority of, of lightfoot shouts aren't negative like that but there is an element of lightfoot shouts where uh, someone has thrown themselves off the pier and in a rough sea knowing that they probably won't be able to survive so it puts a whole different perspective on what happiness actually is isn't it because you can't your your sense of satisfaction of a good job done or the best i could or i ex i extended myself and i helped that person mm -hmm. that is happiness in a more profound way isn't it yeah as a helmsman on the small boat uh, i have to deal with a lot of things like that on the, the big boat as, as we class it as this in, in the 17 meter seven class or, or whatever lifeboat uh, i've progressed from um, deck crew to navigator and you know success in that sense sometimes after a very long rescue as a newly na newly trained navigator back in 2015 i was the navigator to the longest or sorry the furthest out a lifeboat has rescued someone in our online history which was a 110 nautical miles to go and rescue a solo fishing uh, person on a fishing vessel which was taken on water it was a danish uh, fishing boat which was heading to uh, sunderland when you go and search for a casualty, you'll be given a an area where this person will most likely be. So calculating uh, how much wind is taking them away in one direction, how much tide has taken them away in a different direction possibly. And then, well, the tide changed in a half of that hour. So they might have gone somewhere else within another half an hour, you know, that tide, Tide is not always a constant direction, and the same as wind is not always a constant direction. Uh, so there's all these elements to constants that consider. And that might be someone you say, oh, well, that boat's um, 10 miles off. And uh, they might have drifted that far within this hour, or they might have drifted. When you're working with something which is 110 miles off, and it's going to take you 
four and a half hours to get there, then this search box just increases, increases, increases. And you realize that you actually effectively are going out to try to search for a needle in a haystack. Mm -hmm. And the likelihood of that success being quite low. So it's hard. It was very, very good because this, this, this shout was um, successful. We went out and uh, as a fresh train navigator, because uh, we all go down to do national training down at pool and all the online, um, all the crews from all around the country go, go to the headquarters as well as having training on the station. And uh, I, I was fresh back from there, the coxswain, just looked over my shoulder a few times to make sure, but we got got out there and we did a search and the helicopter uh, who had gone back to refuel and managed to get a, a weak communication on a radio. And we were able to pinpoint his location using the, our, our, our vessel and, and the help from the, the, the helicopter. And uh, we came alongside him. That just popped up on on a memory on Facebook, and that was 2015, and that uh, that was an amazing experience to to see sight of him when you hadn't seen sight of anything for so long. From that progressing, I'm I'm now knocking on the doors at work to become coxswain. I, I've done all the, done all the training, um, I've done command courses, and there's a couple of more units to do out on the water with the local assessor, uh, which has been difficult because of COVID, you know. Um, it's like doing all your le lessons for your, um, lessons for your driving test, and then having your, having your uh, exam, you know, your driving uh, uh, test actually a year and a half later, you know. It's, uh, it, it, everyone within, within, on the crew, you know, uh, is needing to be out in a boat more. But because of restrictions, we haven't been able to. Oh, you've got so, boat withdrawal. <laughs> yeah, so we need to, uh, because we're putting ourselves at risk, because it, we effectively are putting our lives at risk, mm -hmm. we need to be trained to a capacity all the time. Mm -hmm. So at any point when when it's really rough at sea, we'd still, the page would still go up. So quite, it, it's quite interesting, training, isn't it, when you think... Um, the training yeah. is important. I walk along the sea seafront regularly and see the the paddle boards and the the sheer number increase in number. The sea is being used so much more now than in my in my since I was a child in mm. terms of numbers of people, and they're they're out there. So, but you know, potentially there are more people theoretically at risk. Yeah, uh, I think we are online or expecting because we also look after the beaches these days as well, within the lifeguards. Our online have taken over most of the beaches in the country, so they are looking at the busiest year on record because of COVID. Because everyone isn't flying away, they're all camping and going. It's going to buy a wetsuit. Yeah, yeah but we all say right. Well, even if it's raining, we're going to go down on the coast. So, uh, so, yeah. so what? Tell me a little bit about Mark, the person at rest or in a, well, <laughs> in a, yeah, a non-stressful so, 
contented environment. Yeah, I know it's it. The page is on. You know, I have it clipped on my waist at all times. Uh, have, so. have you got? Have you got it on now? Yes, it's. I've put it away, so it's it's not going to go off uh, while we're talking. But yes, it, it's normally on my waistband. Excellent. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, outside of that. I've been blessed to be able to be in an environment where I can these days not need a shop window. I can I can paint from from home. The way that the world's changed now, I can put, I can do a painting. If it's not a commission, I can do a painting. I can post it on social media, and and I can now effectively increase my shop front to you know ten thousand people or something. You know, the need for an art gallery, what it was was, is not as important, and which then that enabled me to be a more, almost like a stay-at-home dad. Does that give you contentment? I think my happiness uh, is is massively to do with being able to be a dad and be a, a you know an integral part of of the, the day. Uh, the school run, getting them out to school, taking them to school, picking them up from school. You know, it's 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 that's a massively happy thing for me. I um, I, I think there's there's something of your dad there isn't there he, he did it he yeah. was a wonderful dad to you yeah yeah we, we, we i was always playing around taking about uh both me and my sister were, were always around the water and playing on his boats and things and uh and i, and I tried to get, get the kids out and enjoy dinghies and playing around and you know during covid mind you we haven't got as many swimming lessons as i as i've wanted so we still wear the life jackets all the time uh walking even walking down the marina and uh, around boats oh, and things fabulous. but uh yeah it, it's it's a great it's a great thing to to be a dad and and to uh to nourish whatever they want to do you know at, at the same time uh, if they don't want to go out in the water you know they don't have to yeah. they, it just happens that they all like drawing and you know but at the same time I, I don't sit them down and I don't teach them how to draw because the artistic flair you need to develop it you need to be free with it uh, I think what's happened so many times when people say I can't draw is when it's when people have been saying well that's wrong what's wrong about it because you haven't drawn it like someone else has drawn it or like this um there's plenty of time to be shown how to draw, but not at an infancy, not when you're really young. Just enjoy this experience, mm -hmm. enjoy the colour. What does that feel like? What does that colour feel like? Well, how do you draw feelings? You know, trying to oh, do that. Mark, that's amazing. That's trying, amazing. Try, trying to do that rather than being told you can't. <laughs> oh, you, you, you can't draw that horse right. Oh, you can't, I, I can't draw. I've been told I can't draw this. I can't draw that. Well, draw how you want to draw it and, and enjoy it and, and be happy with what you've done. Encourage me. We're drawing, drawing to a close now, but I, I wonder, is, is there anything that we've, that we've talked about or that might be in the back of your mind that, that would epitomise your view of happiness or a single thing that you can think of immediately that makes you feel good? Don't try too hard to 
think that you, you know money's going to make you happy to enjoy things around you the simple things in life it doesn't it, it really doesn't matter where you are just be happy thank you so much much mark it's been an amazing amazing story amazing story i've had a word in my head all the way through i'm, I'm known for having words in my head and i think you're a polymath and i don't think you you fully appreciate it <laughs> you you've got such a wide range of, of expertise and experiences so it's been an absolute privilege to talk to you so thank you you're my pleasure So that was the conversation that I had with Mark, which I really enjoyed, and I wonder how everyone else felt about it. My my heart was in my mouth for large portions of that uh, when he was describing the um, the rescue that they've been doing. Was it Marsden? Um, just how vividly he described it, but just the thought of that situation and, and what almost they were throwing themselves into doing without having to think about it, just that kind of automatic process. But, you know, how genuinely terrifying it sounded, how much risk that they put themselves at um, was was really sobering. But, you know, it was, it was, I was kind of watching this action movie in my head while I was listening to him talk about it. And it was, it was, it was pretty sobering. I mean, we, we've, we've often talked about how many people come on the podcast and they talk about how the coast makes them happy and getting in the water and, and just, it makes you really, really grateful that there's people like Mark and all those teams that are kind of stationed down down the coast that are, are there to kind of protect us when, when things go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I, I thought that, that the description of the rescues and that, that weighing up of the risks as well mm. um, was, was just, as you say, very sobering and, was a really sort of nice compliment to Jack's interview as well mm, um, yeah. earlier on in the season where he was sort of talking about going out to all the RNLI stations to, to document and record the work that they do, but to actually hear stories from from one of those people that, that Jack may well meet along his journey. Um, and as you say, that that contrast of people's love of the sea um, and, and the fact that we must respect it no matter what. Um, that you just never know uh, when when something might happen. So yeah, thanks to people like him, we we can enjoy the coast safely. Yeah, thank you. There's there's definitely a book in Mark, isn't there? Yeah, there definitely is definitely a book. <laughs> um, just so fascinating, and I, there's so many parts of the interview I love. But I think the enduring thing was the relationship with his father mm. and that deep bond that they have and shared values and interests that connected them. And I think I, I just, I just loved hearing that. And often Kathy say you have words when you listen to in interviews. And I was almost drawing when I was listening to that unconsciously. I don't know. I just think it's beautiful. There's something about the stage that he's at in his life now that seems to be coming full circle. Um, so I, yeah. I, I really enjoyed it, and I look forward mm. to the book. <laughs> I'll, I'll go back. I'll go back and ask him to, to write a book. The family relationships were absolutely amazing when he was talking about that. But also the progression between careers. He's he's been very successful in 
in careers mm. and yet he's moved on at different times and, and having the, the courage and the, the self-knowledge to do that and particularly where his father was concerned when it was, was a choice of, of taking care of his father. I think mm. that was such a courageous decision but the absolutely right one in, in the way that he'd been brought up. It was mm. uh, very humbling to listen mm-hmm. to him. I, I could really relate to what he was talking about with happiness when he was saying that he was finding happiness in lecturing, not the management side of, of his career. And I can I can relate to that, having, um, you know, been a manager and, and managed lots of people at various points in my career. And yeah, I, I enjoyed it. But what I was really passionate about was, was the, the workshops with people and delivering stuff creatively. So I, I could relate to what he was saying there as well. And I think perhaps mm. a lot of people can as well. I, th- I think I think you're right. I think there's a lot of people that you know spend many years doing a job that they love and getting more and more senior. But there's so few routes for people to go where you just, you know, that aren't about kind of, oh, well, you, you've been at this a while. Let's, let's get you managing a team. And actually, mm. it's not the managing bit of it that is the, the enjoyable bit. It's the other bit. But you know, you, you're left kind of trapped. It's, yeah. it's sad that people, you know, end up going down that road sometimes. If you want to see Mark's artwork oh, yeah. on, on display, a good place to go is the Low Lights Tavern in North Shields, which ah. coincidentally sells beer. <laughs> 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 An added bonus. An added yeah. bonus. So, yes, uh, if you're down on the fish key in North in North Shields, pop into the Low Lights Tavern and uh, have a little look at the um, the paintings. Well, thank you, Kath, for a great interview, and thank you, Mark, for for talking to us. If you've been inspired by this podcast episode, then we'd love to hear from you. We love hearing your stories and opinions on what happiness means to you. You can get in touch via email hello at the Northern Guides to Happiness or you can find us on Twitter at North Happiness and Instagram and Facebook at Northern Happiness. We're really glad to be spreading joy and happiness around the Northeast through this podcast, thanks to funding from the National Lottery Community Fund and the Newcastle COVID Fund. So thank you so much to our funders for their support. Next time, we talk to Dan Pye, who wears a couple of different hats. He's Director of Astronomy and Science Communication at Kielder Observatory, But another passion of his is his voiceover work. We had a fascinating conversation about both. So you'll hear me ask him questions like this. So you mentioned the the video game that uh, you've you've done the voices for. Have there been any other kind of standout moments for you, which you would say are are particular happy moments in your career? And hear him give answers like this. Yeah, certainly the the video game was one of the highlights. I uh, was one of the continuity announcers for Channel 4 for a while. Um, That was a a really great experience, getting to speak between the the telly programmes was was very fun. A lot of work, a lot more work than people maybe give them credit for. And I was doing that in between doing shifts at the observatory as well. So I was going down to London, then coming back, doing shifts at the observatory, then going down to London and, and then backwards and forwards. And it was just a bit uh, a bit chaos. So I, I do that lesser now. <laughs> but uh, also being able to voice the uh, the replacement voice for Lost Voice Guy, the stand-up comedian who won Britain's Got Talent a few years ago. Recently, I re-recorded the, his uh his machine that he uses to communicate and that 
was an incredible moment because in voiceover land, you're always creating these creatures or characters or portraying even a character in, a, in an advert, whatever that might be. Whereas this is an actual human that I was going to voice. This was totally different. This wasn't just a, a little robot that sits in the corner of your room. This was an actual person who's going to use my voice to become part of his identity. And that was the real uh, importance of it was uh, Lee had this identity, which was a neutral accent, Graham, his accented voice, whereas now what we've created for him is his own identity, his own local connection to his local accent by revoicing that in Geordie. So we've reached the end of another episode. We hope you're enjoying listening to the Northern Guide to Happiness. Take care and see you all again next week for another episode. (laughs) 